My parents recently celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. And here's a photo of them, of their visit to D.C. early in their relationship. You know, I love them and the way that they've modeled what it looks like to be faithful to one another and to honor God with their marriage. And even though they are two unique individuals covered by God's grace, the way that they've lived their lives has been instrumental for me to be the kind of person I am today. But in all those years, uh, I don't think I ever had a significant conversation with them where we sat down to talk about sex as a single person or in marriage. Now, I don't hold anything against my parents for that, but it was just not something that we broached growing up. Now, that may or may not be the case for you, but fortunately, we don't have to just rely on our parent figures or our schools or the internet now to teach us about sex and relationships. We have people like Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Before there was ever Ask Amy or Ask Carolyn Hacks in the Washington Post, there was Ask Paul. We've been walking through the letter to the Corinthians in this sermon series entitled, The United Gifts of the Spirit in God We Trust. It's, of course, a nod to the name of our country and our currency that, too, says, In God We Trust. The question is, which conception of God do we actually trust in when we hear that phrase? Is it a God of our imagination or creation? Or is it the God of Scripture revealed ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ? That's the underlying question we must ask ourselves in any conversation and controversy whenever God is referred to. In 7 verse 1, Paul lists, you know, concerning the matters which you wrote about. Paul is responding, up until this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been responding to oral reports that he's been receiving about the Corinthian church that they hoped he wouldn't find out about. But a a leader in the church named Chloe was giving him the down low on their divisions over ethnicity and how to deal with incest and prostitution that was all going on in their church. In chapter 7, Paul is writing specifically back to them in response to questions that the Corinthian church poses to him in a letter that we now no longer have a copy of. The Corinthian church knew that this response to them would be distributed to other churches, as was standard practice of the day. So they tried to keep their questions a little little more politically correct. They didn't want to have their dirty laundry displayed for other churches to know about. It's kind of like you writing to Carolyn Hacks. Would you want everyone who reads the Washington Post to know about your problems? So they keep their official questions to Paul a little more PG. It's about sex in marriage and divorce and singleness and remarriage here in chapter 7. And then he moves on to, they move, uh, Paul responds to resp- their questions about food laws in chapters 8 through 11 that we're going to get to in the coming weeks. So today, I'm going to walk through chapter 7 in three parts, looking at marriage, looking at singleness, and calling. Marriage, singleness, and calling. So as we begin to uh, discuss sexual ethics in this series, I have been approaching them in light of the historical Christian view of sexual relations being practiced within the covenant of marriage. However, I must also acknowledge that there are Christians who hold on to other ethics when it comes to sex. That is the discernment process that we are currently in the midst of as a congregation of how the historical Christian view of sex informs the sexual practices and ethics that we have now. The elders and I welcome your input in this process, and so feel free to email us about your questions and comments. 
In this chapter, Paul is specifically addressing their questions of whether sexual relations should even be had at all, even within a marriage. And so he quotes them saying, concerning the things that you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. While some in the Corinthian church believed sex was an appetite to be satisfied that we learned about last week, regardless of who it was with, there were some in the Corinthian church that believed sex, like human appetites, were meant to be denied to reflect a deeper spirituality or a greater maturity. Remember, the Corinthian church was dealing with spiritual elitism, and this elitism even crept into how they viewed sexual relations even within a marriage. But here Paul is affirming that sex is to be enjoyed as a gift between two marriage partners. Last week, I introduced the Jewish literary structure of the chiasm that some of you may have come across before to help us understand this line of argumentation, a very Jewish line of argumentation that Paul uses. Take a look at this passage with the chiasm displayed. Now, full acknowledgement, the chiasm is small, and I heard some of your comments last week, so there is a link directly to the presentation for you to view in the YouTube description if you click below, uh, if you're viewing it on YouTube. And it will also be posting it on the sermon audio page as well. On the outside of the chiasm, you'll see highlighted in red, there are two, Paul starts with the negative reasons for maintaining marital relations because of temptation or unfaithfulness, what he refers to as immorality in verse 2 and as self-control in the end of chapter, uh, verse 5. Keeping sex within the marriage to prevent temptations that you, you keep sex within marriage to prevent temptations that are destructive to relationships. Now, I mentioned Carolyn Hacks, and this week there was a very interesting uh, post. A young man who was a personal trainer uh, wrote to her asking for advice. He, as a personal trainer, he began a, a relationship with a woman who was 40 years old that, that he was training, one of his clients. And over several months, they would get together several times a week to sleep together. Only problem was she was already married. The husband found out and called the gym, called his mom. I don't know, he somehow knew the personal trainer's mom, and then showed up to confront the trainer at the gym where he tried to take a swipe, a punch at the trainer. The trainer was, you know, dodged it and knocked him out. And turns out the personal trainer was fired from the gym. So, All that happened, and the young man wrote to Carolyn Hacks asking for advice on how to get his job back because he thought it was very unfair that he lost his job over this situation. Now, as you hear that, clearly there are a whole lot of issues going on that need to be addressed by all involved. And beyond the young man needing a little more to work on his self-awareness and maturity, the point is, is that sexual unfaithfulness hurts others. But negative reinforcement is never a good rationale, except when I use it in a sentence to make a point. The positive aspect of sex in marriage is also addressed in verses 3 and 5. If you take a look, it's coming up on the screen. Again, highlighted in red. More literal translations like the NRSV or the ESV render verse 2 like this. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and vice versa, and pairs it with verse 5. Do not deprive one another. And we find here that Paul is saying sex isn't only for procreation, as some might believe. Sex offered to your marriage partner is a mutual gift to one another that's grounded in this commitment that your whole lives are are gifts to one another. It's counter to our culture that tells us that sex is a mutually beneficial appetite 
to be met. And that sexual compatibility must be tested before commitment can be made. The Christian story reminds us that no one is truly compatible with one another. Because in our hearts, we are selfish. We're often lacking in self-awareness that, uh, and often lacking in self-awareness that, uh, of that selfishness and insecurity. See, no one really chooses the good of the other and gives for the other without the work of God's Spirit in their hearts to help us love sacrificially. It's in the commitment to each partner, giving all to one another within the marriage covenant, that we can give of ourselves and in the most intimate act that can be shared between two humans. Now, back to the passage. If we look, we're going from the outside of the sandwich back to, into the center, which gives us the basis for this mutual and equal gift-giving from both partners. In verse 4, we're told, the wife rules over the husband and the husband rules over the wife. They each rule over other, one another because of love. It's not just mutual compromise where both individuals happen to consent. It's a complete giving of self to the other, recognizing that the other person has full rights over my body. It's been protected by the vows made at a wedding, witnessed by friends and family who can hold the couple accountable to the vows. What Paul proposes here is really countercultural, even in that patriarchal society, and especially when the Jewish interpretation of the Torah at the time stated that a woman who violated marital vows deserved a greater punishment than men who violated marital vows. Now, Paul, as a learned rabbi, would have been fully aware of that inequality between men and women in a marriage relationship, but he makes no mention of it here. Instead, Paul affirms that each partner has equal authority over the body of the other in marriage. This equality of partnership may sound like common sense to us now, but for ancient times, what Paul proposed was completely unheard of. Yet we might bristle even now at what Paul says to us. What do you mean? Someone else has right over an authority over my body in, in the marriage relationship? It challenges our Western ideal of individual autonomy and agency. In Paul's eyes, Jesus and the gospel completely discards inequality. It challenges our ideal of individual autonomy and informs this beauty of an equally given uh, sexual relationship within marriage as a reflection of the gospel. Now, in verse 12 and 13, it comes up on the screen below, the, Paul continues to address the questions of marriages, a marriage with an unbeliever. And while the Corinthian church would have had Paul's sexual ethic that we, was introduced in the previous chapter and had Jesus' words regarding marriage and sex in mind, Paul found himself advising the Corinthian church where people were with a, without a Jewish background were coming to faith in Christ. They didn't have the same framework of marriage and sex. And the Corinthian church wondered, is a believer defiled, which is a very Jewish concept because of sexual relations with an unbelieving spouse? So should they divorce because of that? These were all the kind of questions that new believers were asking Paul, unfamiliar with the Jewish uh, worldview. And for Paul, the answer was no. Within the covenant of marriage, sexual relations with an unbelieving partner is not grounds for divorce if the two partners consent to continuing the marriage in light of this believing partner's newfound faith. The theological rationale is that there is an honor for the marriage covenant 
even a secular or non-Jewish or non-Christian one, that God honors. Consent to honoring the marriage is greater than the perceived sin of a sexual relationship with an unbelieving spouse. In verse 15, Paul continues, If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. The practical rationale found in 7.15 is that God has called us to live in peace. The goal in every situation is peace, not just absence of conflict, but the flourishing of human relationships, even if there are differences. And that even applies to someone who abandons the marriage because of the one believing partner's faith conviction. But it also provides rationale for leaving a marriage that is abusive, especially when the one partner does not acknowledge they're wrong. So hear this. If you find yourself in a situation today where you're in a marriage with someone who does not share your faith conviction, it does not mean that that's less than. There are, of course, compromises to be made because, of your, fundamental, because your fundamental loyalties in life are actually very different. And I, in fact, tell this to many couples who come to uh, ask me to marry them. If one of them is a Christ follower and the other isn't, to the unbelieving partner, I will say, I hope you realize that your partner's fundamental loyalty in life is not going to be you. And that will affect the way that you navigate how you spend your time together, how you spend your money together, and how you might raise your children together. Are you going to be okay with that? Are you both okay with that? In fact, Paul instructs the believing spouse that you have a mission field to influence your children and your spouse in in the ways of Jesus. And that's This is the way that they are sanctified when Paul refers to that, you sanctify your your partner. Not in a sense of being saved, but that they are set apart from others with the potential of coming into the kingdom of God uniquely because of Christ's work in your life and because of your proximity to them. The believing partner is sanctifying their family in that way. So, with all that background of sex and marriage and remarriage, and divorce, Paul turns his attention to those who are single. Whether it's previously married and now widowed or divorced or not yet married. In verse 8 and 9, and, uh, we see, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He repeats the similar thing in verse 26 and 28 to those who are not yet married. Stay single if you are able but get married if you are able as well. Or verses 36 to 38, to those who are single and not gifted with this gift of celibacy, get married. To those who are single and feel called and gifted for celibacy, then stay single. Paul's overarching concern here is staying single or getting married is once again similar to the charge to married couples. Negatively, if you're going to be prone to sexual temptation, then get married. But more positively, recognize what is more important. It's your gifts and the times and the world that we live in. None of these things in our life right now is permanent, even if our marriages, uh, even our marriages and sex and romance. In verse 29 to 31, Paul reminds us, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. And at the end of verse 31, he says, for in this present world, in this world, in its present form, is passing away. For Paul and the early church, every single day since the resurrection of Jesus was considered the last days. 
And to both singles and married couples, live as if time is short. Whether you are single or whether you are married, use your time to honor God who saved you and who leads you. And in Paul's view, being single offers this gift that married people cannot enjoy. In verse 35, he says, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. There's a subtext here that confronts our Western, American, and even supposedly Christian view of marriage and romance that is often over-idealized. Despite what Hollywood and Instagram and even the Christian church assumes, being married and with a romantic partner is not the epitome of human flourishing. In fact, they're not even requirements for human flourishing and happiness. And if you're familiar with the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says to his disciples this, he goes, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down with your lover in a bed? No. Than to lay down with your partner of 50 years on a beach and enjoy life? No. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for your friends. Not your marriage partner, not your spouse, not your romantic partner, not your lover. The command to love, the greatest command to love, is radically expressed fundamentally in friendship. So in God's kingdom, loving deeply and enjoying love deeply does not require a romantic partner. That's in ways a lie that the world tells us. For those who are single, you have opportunities to reflect this kingdom where Jesus is a king in a way that married people cannot. And as a married person, let me apologize on behalf of other married people where we have not recognized the gift of your singleness or we've taken advantage of your singleness thinking that you are always available to babysit or to house sit or to drive us to the airport without simply enjoying you as a friend. We are so sorry. We have not done that well. So married people, we can do better to honor and to love our single friends and family. And this leads us to the final section, calling. You know, amidst this chapter on dealing with human relationships and sex, Paul interjects with this very strange section in verses 17 to 24 that we heard read by Jenna earlier. It deals with Jews and Greeks when he refers to circumcised and uncircumcised and slaves and free. What's going on here? Is Paul like ADD or something? The answer becomes clearer if we look at it as a chiasm again. Take a look on the image. In this case, it's an interesting chiasm because it's like a big sandwich. It's a double-decker sandwich. It's a, like a Big Mac if McDonald's is your thing. You see, the bread is verse 17, verse 20, and verse 24. They're marked in red on the image right there. The refrain in those verses is, remain or walk it remain in or walking in your calling by God. The middle piece of the bread that remain in your calling supports both the filling above and the filling below. It's the middle piece of bread. And the, what is the filling? The top filling is verses 18 and 19, addressing Jews and Greeks. And the bottom filling has to deal with the slave and the free. What Paul is saying here is everyone is called by God. So live faithful to that call, regardless of what sources of identity your culture has valued. For the Corinthians, 
In ancient times, Jew and Greek was one very key source of identity. Being slave or free was also another key source of identity. And being single or married were also primary categories of identity found in their context. Now, if you've read Galatians, you'll, you'll kind of hear the similar kind of categories. When Paul writes to them, saying there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is not, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This trifecta of identity sources in ancient times is referenced there as well. But for those who have responded to Christ, those are real things, but they are not ultimate real things that we define ourselves by. Verse 19, he says, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts most. Circumcision was a huge marker for Jewish ethnic identity that set them apart from others. For those who count ethnicity and race as primary to your identity, Paul is saying, don't do that. In fact, Paul says, count them as nothing in light of your calling in God. In verse 22, Paul turns to the other source of identity, slave versus free. For those who are slaves, they made up 50% of the Corinthian population. He says, remember, you're a slave, but you are free in the Lord. And for those who are free in society at the time, he says, remember, you are a slave of Christ. Your socioeconomic status is secondary and seen in light of your calling in God. So if your status as a slave can change in this world and you can become free, do it. That's what Paul says. Stay free. Don't go back and become a slave. But remember, you are always free in Christ. So for us today, what primary sources of identity in our culture do we find ourselves clinging on to that causes us to forget our calling and our identity in Christ? Maybe it's Democrat versus Republican. Maybe it's Antifa versus Proud Boys. BLM versus KKK. SUV drivers versus EV drivers. Conservative versus liberal, maybe on the economy, or conservative versus liberal on Christian theology. Are you a tradition keeper or are you a tradition breaker? You're single versus married? Gay versus straight? Paul's words to sisters and brothers in Christ is this. Remember your true identity and remember your true calling in God first. Continue living faithful to God where God has called you, whether you're single, divorced, married, gay, or straight, as you come to Jesus and, with, and live in community with the body of Christ, you begin to discern your calling. Your calling in God is affirmed by the people of God, wrapped in the love and the grace of God. And if those situations can be changed, that better reflect God's ideal towards sex within marriage or no longer living under oppression, then do it. But most important is peace and the flourishing of all involved. You know, your ethnicity, your place in the socioeconomic ladder, your sexuality and your marriage status, those are not what are most important, as much as the world tells us it is. No matter what our narrative world, in our world is trying to tell us, none of these are essential for human flourishing and happiness. Living your true authentic self is not a solo venture. Your true authentic self is defined by someone outside of yourself and affirmed by the fellowship of Christ's followers. So remain where God has called you 
and allow the calling of God to call you from those sources of, of identity that are foisted upon us by the world and into the loving embrace of the God who loves you. Verse 23, Paul reminds us, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. You know, these identities can become human masters for us, telling us to do and be something that may perhaps we're not. Remember, for those who have responded in faith to Jesus, you are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. As we learned last week, what you do with your body and with your life is informed by Christ's crucifixion in the past, by your resurrection in the future, and by the Trinity God and by, by the body of Christ that you are joined to as you respond in faith to Jesus. Those are your key identity markers that all other identity sources are meant to be shaped by. And that gives us peace. Because we don't have to strive to find the right subculture or narrative to identify with. We don't have to figure it all out on our own. Our identity is grounded in the objective truth of God's love for us displayed in Christ. So be assured and live in that assurance to the glory of God. Amen.